Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with World Series winner and Phillies legend Larry Boa. Drilled in the left field corner, Boa's going to have extra bases. Willie Wilson to the wall. Boa continues to have an excellent World Series with a double off the screen. And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the program, I'm joined by a five-time All-Star, a two-time Gold Glove winner, and was a huge part of that 1980 Phillies World Championship team. He was named Manager of the Year in 2001 and is currently a senior advisor to the general manager for the Philadelphia Phillies. I've known this man pretty much my whole life. Ladies and gentlemen, Larry Boa. Larry, thanks for coming on the program. All right, Brett. I appreciate it. And I guess this means I've made it. When I get you on your podcast, I guess that means the, that's that's a good thing because I've been reading a lot of good podcasts. It's a pretty high bar. Yeah, I've, I've got that reaction a lot. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I've had a few people say that. I've had I've had a couple buddies say it to me, like, "Oh, it took you this long to get me on." I said, "Well, there's a there's a method to my madness, guys." But no, I'm I'm, uh, (laughs) pleasure to have you on. I'm glad uh, we're going to reminisce and and go through your life, and and I'm a little bit a part of that life, starting off, uh, you know, early in my childhood. The people of the Boom Podcast want to know: your senior advisor to the general manager. What exactly is that? Okay, I'm going to tell you exactly what I do. I go to spring training. I'm in uniform the entire spring. And then when they break camp, uh, if they go home, I go to all the home games. Once they go on the road, then I will go to look at our minor leagues. And if uh, Dave Dombowski wants me to you know, give him a report on a couple players, I'll go down and watch them. But I try to hit A, double A, and triple A throughout the course of the summer. And then again, once they're home, I go watch them play at home. But uh, it's pretty, it's a pretty good gig right now. Uh, you know, then around the trade deadline, they have meetings and, you know, they might ask me a question about one of our minor leaguers and uh, Charlie Manuel and I basically travel together to the minor leagues and uh, we give them our opinion, you know, hey, do you think you should trade player X for this guy? And, you know, he goes around the room and basically uh, asks for our opinions and that's exactly what we do. You enjoy still putting the uni on? I do. I love spring training. You know, as you well know, it's very relaxed atmosphere. Uh, you get to mingle with the fans. Uh, the games are a little bit long, Brett, as you well know. The, the regulars get out of there after three innings, then number 89 and 92 and 95 come in to pitch. And uh, <laughs> those, those two, two and a half hour games go to four hours. Yeah, because because dad, well, we call him Gramps now, you know, um, <laughs> he, he, a few years ago, I said, dad, you know, because he was with the Nationals for a lot of years. I said, dad, what, where's your right. uni? He's like, no, I don't wear the uni anymore. I think, Larry, I think he I think he gave up the uni as soon as he blew out his shoulder, because for years, you know, dad wasn't very good at BP. But at the end of my career, he could still throw BP to me when I needed it. 
And it was kind of handy. Like I said, like I said, he wasn't the best. Then it blew out and he, he can't throw anymore. You know, so when he's, when he's working with his grandson, it's a lot of flip and we got to have somebody throwing BP because I'm telling you what my BP is horrible (laughs) too. But uh, no, it's interesting. And and I think a lot of people out there, you know, you hear the terms thrown around a lot of assistance to this, but that, but that pretty much summed up what you do. And and you kind of have, you kind of wear a lot of hats. And uh, I, I I I did something for the, I did something for the Oakland A's uh, a few years back in 14 and 15. And I I strictly worked on the minor league side and, and actually I really enjoyed it. I was in uni, uh, I'd go to spring training. I'd, I'd work probably uh, eight or 10 days a month where I'd go to the affiliates and just like you said, I'd give my opinion and sometimes they listened to me and sometimes they didn't, but I really enjoyed, especially on the minor league side, uh, watching the development of young players. And and I was lucky enough to have that young crop that's now in the big leagues for the A's with Olsen at first and Chapman. And a few of the guys have been traded away. But uh, it was interesting watching them go. And you know how it is. You see these guys in rookie ball, and it's like the, the physicality's there. But it's like, do you guys even know how to play baseball? Then they get to high A, and you're starting to see some guys that are learning how to play the game. And then and then the steps, you know, double A is kind of the, the bar where if you can compete there, you got a chance to be a big leaguer one day. But I, I really enjoyed the process and still talk to a few of those guys today. And uh, I don't know. It was an interesting part of my life. And I just it, – it, it was it was taking up a little too much time. So I had to, I had to come back and – finish watching my kids grow up but uh good stuff well, i, I could understand that but you know you know the big thing you hit around the head is watching the uh, maturation process with these kids because when you watch them in low a you're, you're scratching your head and you say this guy was a number one pick or and then you go back uh, maybe even at the end of the summer and you say wow this kid's really come on his body's starting to reshape a little bit he's getting stronger uh i like being around the kids because they're still like sponges and they listen and you know how it is. Once you get to the big leagues, everybody's the same. They got it all figured out. <laughs> and if you give them a couple words of advice, they go, yeah, I got you. And you know, it's just like uh, water off a duck's back, but the kids, they, they, they're into it. And uh, I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I, I always said Brett, that if I got tired of going to a game or putting on the uni, then I would just hang it up. But I still have a lot of fun doing that. My energy level is still high, and I really believe that, uh, you know, hanging around the young guys, it doesn't age you as quick as you really are right now. So I feel pretty good going and watching them. Very cool. Uh, you're born in Sacramento, California. Um, yes. I want to hear about Larry Boa as a kid growing up, what it was like. I know, uh, I know your dad, Paul, was a minor league, uh, played minor league ball. Uh, but just right. give me a snapshot of Larry Boa growing up in Sacramento. Okay, well, my dad had a big influence on me. He played as high as AAA. He managed in the Cardinal organization. So he basically, Brett, taught me the fundamentals of the game. And he knew I wasn't going to be a big power hitter from the time I was 9 or 10 years old. But he did know that I had some tools. I could play the infield. I had a good arm. I could run. Uh, at that time, I was a real good hitter in Little League and Babe Ruth League and that. But he definitely had the biggest influence on me. Uh, there were times, you know, he used to work two and three jobs during the week, but on the weekends, he'd always be available. But he never, ever said, you got to play baseball. I always said, let's go, let's go to the park. Let's take BP. Let's take ground balls. And 
it was every single minute that I wanted to go there, he was there for me. Uh, and, you know, I was very fortunate, you know, fast forward it real quick and I'll get back to my childhood, but he was there during the, the clincher in 1980. And to me, that was just as important to me as me winning the world series. I mean, all the work that he put in and the, the plane rides he made to the minor leagues, watching me play in a double a and triple a, uh, I got a lot of satisfaction out, out of the fact that he was in the stands on the last out of the game. And uh, to this day, I look back at my career, and that's the one thing that stands out to me is that my dad got to see me become a world championship uh, winner with the Philadelphia Phillies. And then, you know, getting back to my to, to, to growing up there, uh, we had a place in Sacramento called William Land Park, and during the summertime when school was out, you literally had to be there by 9 o'clock in the morning. They had like eight or nine baseball diamonds there. And you had to get there that early to get a diamond. And we'd get there, and we'd have four or five guys, and we'd play a game where you call, uh, you can't hit the ball the other way. You got to pull everything because you didn't have enough guys. And we did that four, five, six hours a day, every day. My mom used to pack a, a give me a bag for a sandwich, and we'd go down there and just play baseball. And ironically, I go back to Sacramento every year to see my nephew, uh, Nick Johnson, and my sister, and I go by Lampart. Nobody playing. I mean, it's completely empty. And I'm scratching my head and I'm going, man, what, what has happened here? I guess they're all playing video games and, uh, and on the computer. But that's where basically I learned how to play baseball through my dad and through uh, William Land Park. And then, you know, along the way, a lot of peaks and valleys, Brad, as you well know. I got cut from my high school team every year. The guy said I was too small. Uh, you never say anything about my ability. He just said you're too small. And then uh, when Nick Johnson went out, he played uh, the same school I went to. The coach used to give a speech saying, you know, I only made one mistake in my life coaching here. And he goes on to tell the story that he cut me three years in a row. But uh, I was very fortunate at that time. They had a summer league. So I didn't play high school, but I played summer league. And I remember the junior college coach watching the summer league. And he came up to me and he watched me and he said, hey, I'd like you to come out for my team. And I went. I laughed at him. I said, I didn't even make my high school team. How am I going to play at, uh, at your junior college? He said, trust me, I will give you every opportunity to make this team. And I went out and I made all conference two years in a row and eventually signed with the Phillies. And Eddie Bachman was the guy that signed me. And, and your dad knows Eddie Bachman very well. But we had a lot of guys come out of uh, Northern California at that time. And Eddie had a lot to do with the guy signing. But I signed for that big, hefty bonus of $2,000, I think after taxes, I think I might have cleared uh, 1500 or something. But I thought I was walking walking uh, with a dream in my mind because little did I know uh, when Eddie signed me, he says, you know, even if you don't make it to the big leagues, we think you'd be a great organization guy. So just go out there, mind your P's and Q's, play hard, and eventually if you don't make it, maybe you could be a coach or help some kids play infield or whatever. And I said, great. And again, being lucky, being at the right place at the right time, I played A, double A, triple A, all in three years. It just so happened the Phillies were rebuilding in 70, and I got the call as a starting shortstop. I think going into June, I was hitting 180, and the manager, Frank Lucchese, said, hey, I want to talk to you. And I knew, I said, I'm, I'm being sent out. And he said, sit down. I said, okay. And he says, I just want to let you know you're the shortstop. I don't care if you get a hit. The rest of the year, 
I'm sticking with you. And it helped because he was my double A manager and triple A manager in the Meyer Lakes. And basically, if it wasn't for Frank Lucchese, if it wasn't for the rebuild in Philly, I might not have ever played in the big leagues, but everything fell into place for me. And I got a, a nice career after 16 years in the big leagues. It's, it's really a remarkable story. I mean, <laughs> when you talk to, when you talk to game all the time and, and, you know, you, you have the same things, the same questions posed to you as, as posed to me, especially as middle infielders. And right. I always differentiate, you know, that shortstop position from second base. Cause you know, I play, I played second base. I played it pretty good for a long time, but I'll tell you, there's a difference. Yes, you did. There's yes, a difference. Did. The shortstop yeah. is the shortstop. And I, to this day, people ask me, what's the toughest position on the field? I said, it's not even close. It's not even an argument. The shortstop is the yeah. premier defender. The rest of us used to be shortstops. I was always a shortstop <laughs> through college. And I remember I went to, you know, I, I got drafted and I went to this the little camp they send you to before they give you your first assignment to A-ball. And they said, right. Uh, all right, now take your position. And, and I started running to short, but I was kind of kind of looking over my shoulder like, are they going to keep me at short? Boone, you go to second base. And I kind of smiled and went, yep, that's where I belong. And for you, you know, when I was doing my 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 research on Larry Boa, I by the way, I didn't have to do much. I know I know a lot of your stuff. I know a lot of your stuff. But it, it was interesting to me. You didn't make your high school team and you become right. not only a big leaguer, but a big league shortstop and a gold glove big league shortstop. I don't know if you could find another man on earth that played in the big leagues at the shortstop position that did not make his high school team. I, I want you to find that guy. I don't uh, think it happens because uh, the rest of us were all, we were all shortstops. And then, you know, most of them go to left field or wherever their bat can fit. Uh, you're right. I mean, I, and I, you know, I look back at my career and, you know, I, I say, God, I, I can't, but you know, when I first got there, Brett, I said, when I took the Lions opening day in 1970, I said, man, if I could stay here a month, that would be great. And then once I was there a month, I said, maybe I can stay here half the year. Well, as it turned out, I ended up playing a long time. But the reason I played at that position, and, and I think because I played so well, is my dad always told me, because back when I played, the catcher, the shortstop, second baseman, the center fielder, hey, you guys catch the ball. Don't worry about a thing. Right field, left field, first, third. They'll do all the damage at the plate. So I really, and my dad really said, hey, just do the fundamentals. Catch the ball. Make the plays you're supposed to make. Be able to lay down a bunt. Be able to, if they put a hit and run on, put the ball in play. So all these things came into play. You know, obviously now, if I was playing, I probably wouldn't even get a second or third or fourth look uh, because the game has changed so much with the uh, the analytic part of it and everything like that. But, uh, you know, and I look back on our team and I, and I look at that, short second third and catcher we were really good we had your dad behind the plate Manny Trio at second myself at short and Gary Maddox at center I mean they're defensively that was as good as you could get and uh, I remember the very the, the year that Mike Schmidt signed I think it was 73 he was the number one pick obviously and usually when you sign Brett you come up to Philly, you have the press conference, and they send you where you want to go. And he was going to go to Reading, but we happened to be home. And so I'm taking ground balls. And, you know, when you're taking ground balls, you know when someone's standing behind you. And so Schmitty's there, and I looked over my shoulder and said, hey, you want to take some with me? He goes, yeah. So I said, jump in here. And so, because he signed as a shortstop. 
So he's taking ground balls. And I read all the stuff about Mike, a great athlete. He could play any sport. So after a while, I'm watching him. I'm saying, man, this guy's pretty good. And uh, so you know me with my uh, – I like to pop off a lot, as you well know. So no, He's taking no. grounders. <laughs> <laughs> so Schmitty's taking grounders. And after about 15 or 20, I said, hey, you know, uh, I know you just signed and everything. I said, but I think – and I didn't even know this guy. I just met him. I think you're going to have to change positions because I plan on playing here for a while. And he looked at me like I had 10 heads, and he went, oh, okay, I just want to take ground. I said, okay. I said, but I'm telling you, you're going to have to change positions. And we look back at that today, and we still laugh about that. And I tell him, I said, you wouldn't have made the Hall of Fame if you played short because your legs would have blown out. You wouldn't have been able to – your range would have been limited. I said, so I basically I'm going to take credit for you getting into the Hall of Fame. But stuff like that, when you get done and – and you're retired, you think about all the stuff you used to say and do. I look back at that and I go, what a dope I was telling him, hey, you better find another position. <laughs> Little did I know he was going to be one of the greatest third basemen to ever put on a uniform. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $1 on either team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code BOONE this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Larry Boa. Talk about you went to Sacramento City College and you end up playing for two years. Uh, Eddie Bachman, obviously a big part you know, of your life, especially back then. He's the one that signed you, but they said uh, he went to see you play at the junior college. You got, kicked out of the, yep. you got kicked out of the game. I got kicked not only one game, two. The story goes, he called Paul Owens and he said, hey, I got this kid in Sacramento. I don't know if he's going to hit, but he can catch the ball. He can run. He can throw. He handles a bat okay. He says, I think we can sign him. It's not going to take a lot of money. And so Paul Owens said, go look at him. Tell me the report, and then we'll go from there. So Eddie goes, and in the first game, I think I got kicked out in the third inning. And the second game, I got kicked out in the first inning. And so the story goes that Paul, Eddie called Paul, and Paul said, how'd it go with that kid out there? And he goes, Pope, I don't know. And he says, what do you mean you don't know? You told me you are going to watch him. He says, I did watch him. He played three innings, one game and one. He says, I, I, don't, I can't get a read on this kid. I know he has a bad temper, and, but he loves playing baseball. But that's how that sort of evolved. <laughs> and then uh, eventually, <laughs> eventually Paul said, let's sign him for two grand and let him go on his way and send him to Spartanburg. And so that's, how, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> 66 you went to Spartanburg you hit 312 
and and you made all all your you know what we all do. You, you went through the system. You went to Reading. Uh, you went to Double A. Yep. You ended up in Eugene. Hit two eighty seven in Eugene, and right. and then as you mentioned earlier, seventy was your was your breakthrough and your debut. You got to you got to go play with the big right. boys. Uh, you right. stole twenty four bags your first year. It, it, was Danny Ozark the manager then? Seventy. Not, not no. Frank Lucchese oh. was. That's that's. Oh, Lucchese. All right, Ozark I took played. over from Lucchese. Right, right. So, but you know, on on that Eugene thing, that that year I went to spring training. I literally made the team as a utility player. That was in '69, and Bob Skinner was the manager, and he called me into his office, and he says, "I'm going to be honest with you." He says, "You've made the team as a utility player." Now you can do one of two things. You can stay here and be a utility player, or you can learn how to switch it at triple A and be an everyday player. If you're successful at it. And I said, I called him skins or, or skip. I said, skip, I want to play every day. I'll go to triple A. I'll learn how to hit left-handed at triple A. So they sent me there and I hit 286 again, first year, you know, it's like if you eat with your right hand, all of a sudden somebody says, put this in your left hand and eat. I mean, it was, you talk about awkward. I, I, I had trouble. I, I ran 280, I think. Uh, but the fact is that I used my speed. I put the ball in play. And then once I, I played AAA, I went in 70, and I made the team out of the big leagues. But I look back at that, and I said, what a dope you were, man. What if you didn't hit in AAA? And you turned down a utility job in 69 to play with the Phillies. And I just, you know, I, I shake my head at that. But I wanted to be an everyday player. And it turned out it, it turned out pretty good for me. That's remarkable, though. You learn how to hit left hand. I, I could never have done that. I, I, I think. I, you didn't I have, have to, man. You hit balls in the seats. <laughs> but I, I remember turning around trying to hit left hand. And, and I think you made a good, good reference to what it's like. It is. It's. Yeah. The only thing I can do left hand is throw a frisbee. I couldn't. I can't even. I can't eat left hand. I can't do anything left handed, and have to hit left handed. So, but but as you said, I mean, speed was a weapon that you used, and and right. the way you hit, uh, it was it was base. Did you take like the simplest approach you could to to hitting left handed? Oh yeah, they said you know that now you got to hit the ball with the launch angle and everything. And at that time, when I was there. You know, Billy DeMars, who was a very good hitting coach, and everybody. I talked to Darren John. I talked to Tim McCarver. I talked to all these guys that were veterans on that 70 team. And they told me in that spring training, put the ball in play. Keep it on the ground. Make shortstops go to their right. Uh, slap the ball. Do that, and you play in the big league. You know, and now that, that doesn't even come into play now. There's no two-strike approach. Let's see how far we can hit it. Uh, but I did what they basically told me to do, bunt. If you want to put a hit and run on, I'm going to put the ball in play. Uh, so I utilized the tool that I had, the speed, and I turned it into something, you know, that lo and behold, I, if someone would have said, hey, you're going to get over 2,000 hits, I would have laughed. I would have said, you got to be kidding me. But, you know, I, I look back and I got over 2,000 hits. I played every day. Uh and I weighed about 155 pounds when I played, but I look back at that and I'm going, man, that, that is unbelievable for a guy that, that never played high school and really wasn't that good a hitter. Gene Mock said, 
the first year at spring training, I think it was 67, he was still there. Somebody asked him about me. He says, I can see him, but I can't hear him. Basically, he was saying, I see him catch balls. I see him throw. I see him run. But when he gets in the batting cage, I can't hear him. So, yeah. so he basically told me this guy's going to have a tough time making it in the big leagues. You make it in 70. Uh, you come up, Phillies aren't very good when you get there. No, we're I, bad. Think that, we're I bad. think that's being nice about the, about the situation. Yes. 71, uh, steal 28 bags again, 72. You win your first gold glove. And, and I was thinking about this last night. Um, I got to play defense behind some great pitchers. And, and what comes to mind is that I was uh, briefly a, uh, a teammate of Randy Johnson, and, and it was unbelievable right. playing behind him. I, I, one year in, in Atlanta, I got to play with uh, Maddox, Smoltz, and Glavin. Wow. And it was, a, it was an – I mean, it was just different defending behind them because I knew whatever that catcher put down, wherever he set up, it wasn't going to be too far off the mark. You played behind one of the greatest left-handed left-handers of all time, uh, Carlton. We had Steve on the yes. program here a few months ago, but take me through what it was like, and especially that '72 season. He went twenty-seven and ten. Yeah. I think you guys won fifty games. You won the Gold Glove yeah. that year. What was it like playing behind Lefty for all those years? First of all, that year. I don't think that'll ever happen again. I don't. I know we didn't win 60 games, and he won 27. And the big thing about him is when he walked in the clubhouse, even in 72, the only thing he would say is, and we had a, we were starting to get to be a young team. Our kids from the minor leagues were coming up, and he goes, "Today's win day. Any way you have to do it, do it." And I really believe that when Lefty was pitching as a group, we knew if we got two runs there's a good chance we're going to win that game, two to one, two to nothing. We definitely didn't have to score four or five. And I think because of our inability to hit really good pitching, when the other guys pitched, we, we just didn't swing the bat that good. But when lefty pitched, we knew in our minds, hey, get him a couple runs, make all the plays, and we got a chance to win. But to do what he did, his intensity on the mound is something that uh, it's hard to describe. You know, his favorite line – when spring training, he'd get all the infielders and say, let me say one thing, guys. The mound, the dirt area, that's me. Do not come to the mound and tell me you need a blow. Don't do anything like that. You worry about your position. I'll handle the, the mound here. And to make a, a, a long story short, we ended up getting Ted Sizemore uh, in a trade. And he was playing second. And this particular game, Lefty threw. He walked the guy on four pitches. The next pitch was a ball. And I yelled over to Size. I said, Size, go talk to him. And he said, okay. And he starts jogging to the ground. <laughs> and left, lefty's rubbing the ball and looking at center field. He goes, where are you going? And he stopped dead in his tracks, stopped, went back to second. And he looked at me and Schmitty, and we had our gloves up to our mouth. I was cracking up because Size didn't know the rule. Stay off the mound when lefty's pitching. But I looked back at that, and I said, we set him up pretty good. But uh, lefty was uh, – you know, you had you had a great one in in Randy Johnson and those two guys. I tell you what, they uh, they were they're just overpowering. I, I've never seen so many right-handed hitters, Brett, swing at balls 
that almost hit him in the back right leg uh, because the slider that he had, and, and I'm sure Randy Johnson had the same type of slider. But it's fun playing behind those guys. And if you did get a ground ball, nobody really squared him up. I mean, you, you didn't. You don't have to worry about rockets off the bat because he stayed away from barrels. Guys didn't like hitting off of him. And so I think it made it a lot easier for us to play behind him because, as you said, wherever the glove was, the ball was going there. So you can anticipate if the ball's away, you know, this guy's probably going to try to shoot him the other way. If the ball's in, he's probably going to try to pull him. But it made it a lot easier knowing that a guy could hit the glove anytime he wanted to when he was on the mound. And this is a cool time for me because it's, I mean, you're in at the, at the ground floor, um, you know, like we had mentioned in 70, when you came up, you guys weren't very good, but you were kind of one of the original of that, of that, uh, that group. team that kind of comes to fruition in 80, you're, you're kind of the right. original guy and, and along comes right. bull and then comes my dad and then Schmitty. And then uh, right. you mentioned trio late in the late seventies into that eighties run uh, Gary right. Maddox in center field, bake McBride and right. And you know, when I go over stuff like this, this was just, it brings me back to my childhood again. And it's so cool when I when it takes me back to those days of coming to the ballpark and just being a pain in the ass. But it's just <laughs> it's every it's everything in my world to come to the ballpark and hang out with you guys. Even if I'm bugging you, I don't care because I got to go shag and I've got to do oh. this and I got to put my uni on. Yeah. And uh, you, know, you know, even to this day, you know what, to this, go ahead. You know, I was gonna say, you know what's unbelievable about that when you talk about shagging. You know how that AstroTurf was if it rained like a little bit in the outfield and that ball hit and would skid? And, mm-hmm. and I remember, like it was yesterday, Bull, it was in the group hit, and I said, well, Booney's going to get hurt out there, man. These guys, this ball's skipping out there. Guys are hitting rockets. And you guys are out there, you, you and Aaron are picking stuff. And I'm going, that's unbelievable. But every <laughs> day you guys would be out there shagging. And, and I mean, like, it looked like you guys were 16 and 17 years old, but I mean, you talk about getting your feet wet early and to play with all those guys that you mentioned. I mean, I'm, I was really lucky to play with Rose, who probably should be in a hall, who should be, Carlton, Schmitty, your dad, to me, should be a Hall of Famer. I mean, we had some great players on that team, and you guys are running stuff down out there. Balls are skipping off the turf, and, and you're picking it like it's nothing. I'm going, that's unbelievable out there. It, it was such a it's such a cool childhood that you know when you're a kid, Larry, you don't you don't think any. I just thought, wait a minute, this is where Dad goes to work. Doesn't every kid get to do this? But when you get <laughs> when you get older and you get to reflect on it and, and realize how special of a time it was, and and right. how cool it, that's when the appreciation comes. You you don't appreciate it that much when you're going through it. I remember I still my mom mom shows me pictures of me on that on that on one of the floats uh, in the parade in 1980. And I'm just sitting there, you know, a million people. And I'm thinking I was probably 10, 11 years old thinking, well, this is just, you know, what we do after we win here. (laughs) And and like, that was no big deal, but it's, it's such a cool thing. And uh, man, all those years, Aaron, Aaron, especially, you know, he's the nostalgic one. And still to this day, we get together when the family gets together, he reminisces about those Phillies games and, and those years and uh, talks, you know, the Harry Callis and does the, impre- you know, Aaron doing all the impressions. Oh, he's unbelievable. And he still and, you knows, know, you know, we, we, he, he knows the highlight films. He can, he can 
repeat the highlight film from like 76 verbatim. And it'll be like, you know, Larry Christensen. I'm trying to get another foot on my fastball. And Aaron remembers all that. But what a what a cool time for me as a kid growing up watching you guys and uh, just watching that team grow and get better and better and better. And eventually, like like uh, we talked about 80, it all comes to fruition. Yeah, you know, and people ask me, what was the greatest thing that ever happened to you in the Philly uniform? It's not even close. I mean, winning the first ever World Series in Philly history and then the parade. But to give you a story about, about Aaron, you know, we play the Yankees a lot in spring training, so I get to see him every year. And every spring training, they come over there, and he'll get, he'll get down that stance that I had. and he'll, He can still imitate stances, and I'm going, this is unbelievable. And, uh, but he, was, he could imitate anybody. And I'm sure as we speak today, if you said, hey, give me a baked McBride, he'll get up there and give you a baked McBride. But, uh, you know, it was fun about that, uh, going reminiscing through that. I'm going to tell you one real quick story about uh, Pete Rose, Dickie Knowles is pitching, and uh, your dad's catching. And Dickie's on the mound, and he kept shaking your dad off. And eventually, the next pitch or a couple pitches later, the guy hits one, I mean, 480 feet. And so the inning's over, and Pete comes in, and Dickie's sitting on the bench, and Dickie and Pete says, "Hey, Dickie, let me ask you a question. What college did you go to?" And Dickie says, "Yeah, I didn't go to college." He says, "Oh, really?" He said, "Well, you see that guy behind the plate, number eight? He went to Stanford. Don't ever shake him off." And I look back on that, and Dickie looked up at Pete like, "Oh, okay, okay." <laughs> but I mean, stuff like that stands out to me because. It was like, right, he just gave up a bomb, and he, he could barely got to the dugout, and Pete went right up to him. You know Pete. Oh, yeah. College. I didn't go to college, <laughs> but it was funny. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you, and, and they always, I always get asked this, who's your favorite player as a kid? I never had a favorite player. I never did. I said I loved all the players. I said, I went to the right. ballpark and whoever would hang out with me that day. I used to, you know, some <laughs> days I'd hang at your end of the locker room. Some days I'd be hanging with Manny Trio, helping him paint it. Remember, he used to paint his gloves black. And I used to help oh, yeah. him with the shoe polish, paint his, you know, some day, days I had to hang out with Bushy and the Philly Fanatic. But I'll tell you, it didn't matter to me. As long as I was at the park in my uni, I was a, I was a happy kid. And uh what 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 awesome what, times! Um, you know what? Right, to, what people say uh, it's in it's in the genes. Uh, 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 the kids went to the clubhouse with their dad, and that means something. There's no doubt in my mind that you guys, you and Aaron, and you look at Griffey, and you look at even Pete's kid, all those guys that end up playing professional baseball. I guarantee them being around the clubhouse and being around the guys that had a big influence on them pursuing their dreams. And that's why when I see a kid and his dad was very successful at the big leagues, man, you got to hang with him because uh, there's a lot of good things that happen when you grow up in those clubhouse. Obviously there's things that you can't do now that we did back then, but uh, looking back on that, those young kids that came up in their dad's play, that means a lot on it, on them attaining their goal. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, starting at 74, you're an all-star. You're an all-star in 75. Yep. You hit 305. Uh, 39 bags, 24 stolen bases in 75. 78, uh, you're an all-star again and in 79. And uh, 
let's get to we've been, I've been I've been teasing it enough. Let's get to that 80 season, start to finish. What a what a not only were the Phillies great, but that city of Philadelphia that particular year was rocking. I think all you guys were were killing it. The Eagles, yep. uh, the Flyers, and the Sixers. Um, yep. But take me through take me through the, your your best recollection of that eighties year. All right, what you said about all the teams were rocking. Every team got to the finals. The, the, the Flyers, the Sixers, the Eagles, and the Phillies. We were the only one that won the whole thing, but. That's very difficult to do when you have four major teams all getting to the finals the same year. That I don't know if that'll ever happen again. But I remember in spring training, a Ruley Carpenter, who was a great owner, I mean, unbelievable owner, and Paul Owens in Dallas, they basically told us, you know, we, you guys have been coming up short. You guys are good, but you have not attained your goal. You know, we kept getting there. And whether it be the big red machine or the Dodgers, something would always happen. A play, a pitch, an umpire's call, whatever. It just – and they were good teams. I'm not going to say that anything to do with it. They, they were better than us. But we couldn't get over the hump. And, and I remember really saying, guys, I do not want to break this team up. But if we don't get to where we want to go, I'm going to have to do some things here and start all over here. And so that was basically – from the day, first day of spring training in 80, we remember that speech because really very seldom would ever go down there and give rah-rah speeches or get on anybody. That was Paul and Dallas and the rest of the guys. But when he said that, I think it got our attention. And to be honest with you, we got out of the gate slow in 80. We didn't really do too much. And then all of a sudden, the second half, we start, we caught fire. But looking back on that, we had some big series before the – before the World Series, we had to go into Montreal and win two out of three, the last three games of the season, just to win that division. And Schmitty hit a huge home run uh, off of Bonson to win that, to take, let us win two out of three in Montreal. Then we had to wait to see who we were going to play. The Dodgers and Houston were having a playoff game. Houston ended up winning that. So we found out we had to play, we were going to play the Houston Astros, uh, best of five. And every one of those games went extra innings with the exception of the first one. And we couldn't start the big guy the first game because we had to pitch him in that Montreal series. So we had to start Bob Walk, who was a rookie, and we fell behind early. We ended up winning that game. And anyway, we went to game five in Houston. That noise factor, uh, it was unbelievable in the Astrodome. I, I, I could never hear myself think there. And when you talk, you had to scream. And when Nolan Ryan had a lead going in the seventh inning, his numbers were off the chart. He was beating us five to three at that time. And I remember Pete says, I was leading off. He says, boat, you get on. We're going to beat Nolan Ryan. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm all in. I said, I'm getting on. So I get on and, you know, people say, why didn't Bill Verdon take Ryan out? Well, I'm going to tell you why. I hit the first pitch for a base hit over short. Your dad hit a ball off Nolan Ryan that if he catches it, it's probably a double play. And it went off his glove, and it trickled behind him. So we got first and second on two pitches. Greg Gross comes up, lays down a perfect bunt down the third baseline. So on three pitches, we have the bases loaded and no outs. And everyone says, why didn't they take him out? Well, first of all, he's a horse. And three pitches, and we really didn't crush the ball. I got a blue pit. Your dad hit one off his glove, and then there was a bunt. 
And then in the end up turning out, we, we end up going ahead. They tied it and we end up winning the ball game, but to beat Nolan Ryan. And I, the reason I remember about Nolan Ryan, because your mom, the night before that was a big game and, and we were all getting something to eat. And she goes, Oh, we're going to win this game. I said, Sue, easy. We're going to, we're going to win this game. She goes, yeah, but Nolan Ryan. I said, I don't care who's pitching. We're going to win this game. Are you sure? I said, Sue, we got it. We got it. Uh, as it turned out, we ended up beating Nolan Ryan. But on that plane ride home, I remember we were talking with Bull, you know, who's played cars and everything. I said, we're going to win the World Series. And I never used to – I respect the game, and I always respect who we played and uh, what the circumstances were and everything. I said – and Bull goes, why, why are you so sure? And I said, because for us to beat Nolan Ryan, for us to go into Montreal and win two out of three, I said, I'm telling you, the stars are aligned for us to win this thing. And it turned out we ended up beating Kansas City four games to two in the parade down Broad Street – uh, those, those memories are etched in your mind forever and ever. And, uh, then we go into JFK stadium. If you remember that, that's no longer there, but there was a hundred thousand people there after the parade route ended and to go in there and see those people, uh, like I said, those are memories that, uh, they stay with you forever. You had bull and, and lefty and, and dad, you guys have played together a long time. How big of a factor do you think, uh, Pete was coming over from the Reds. I think he was huge. You know, we, we came up together, as you said. The one thing we did do, though, together, we learned how to win in the minor leagues, but for some reason, we were missing something. I, I don't know what it was. Like I said, I know we played two good teams all the time, the Dodgers and the Big Red Machine, but Pete gave us that little push. And, uh, you know, no matter how bad things were going at a time or – he would constantly tell Mike Schmidt, you have no idea how great you are. Get out there. and Carry us his next two weeks. And, you know, Bull was always – Bull could get – when Bull got hot, he got hot as anybody. But Pete gave us that – that if it was a, a positive energy, I'll call it positive energy. But it, I don't care if we lost two or three in a row. He'd always come in and he said, we got to win this one. This is the one we got to win. And if we win that night, he said, don't forget how you did it. You got to do it again. You got to do it again. And, uh, it, but he was very instrumental. Not only was Pete instrumental, but Dallas Green was too. And I know Dallas had some guys that, uh, he rubbed the wrong way. I mean, if you remember that, he took Bull out. Bull had a slump. We put Lonnie, Lonnie Smith. He, yeah, he took Greg Maddox out because he wasn't hitting. And we played Keith Moreland and and and, and uh, Big McBride in a play. He wasn't afraid. If you weren't producing during the season, he wasn't afraid to say, "Hey, you know what?" Because he did have a clubhouse meeting in late August, and he said, "You guys think you're better than you are." And he said, "You guys haven't won anything. You've been reading too many press clippings. You're not that good." And he go right down the line. What have you done? You haven't played in the World Series. You haven't done this. And uh, so one <laughs> after that meeting, we lost a tough game and. Dallas, I know it was uh, – he programmed this for this to happen. At the vet, if you remember the manager's office, it was right off the clubhouse, the main clubhouse, and he left his door open, and the writers used to go in after the game, and, and he'd go into a spiel again. These guys ain't that good. He says, I'm tired of watching them think they're better than they are. And so obviously the writers, because Bull wouldn't say nothing, and, and Schmitty wouldn't say anything, and your dad, he was always diplomatic at what he said, so he'd pick the right word. So – they come running out to me and they go, Hey, did you hear Dallas in there? I said, are you kidding me? Did I hear him? Yeah, I heard him. I said, everybody in the clubhouse heard him. And they said, what do you think? And I said, why don't you ask Dallas how many games he won in the big leagues? 
So obviously they drop their pencils and run back out there. And Dallas comes out and he goes, touche, Bo. (laughs) (laughs) Bull said, you're in trouble. I said, you know what? I'm tired of hearing this stuff. We're not that good and all that. And, and, but you know what? He had an impact on us. He, you know, he, he, he caught it, got our attention. And, uh, and I'm not saying we read our press clippings. We knew we were good, but we just couldn't get over the hump, Brett. And as you well know, I don't know if it was psychological after a while, but finally, we finally got over the hump. And uh, looking back on that, that's the greatest feeling in the world, being a world champion. Well, because, you know, that, that stri- string, it's not like you guys came out of nowhere. I mean, you'd had some right. rough series, some heartbreak series. You've been to the postseason yes. three or four times leading up to 80 where you almost got this. Series. And it was a different game back then. I mean, it was – there were four divisions – and yep. basically, you had one series before you got. But but man, you, you mentioned it. You had to beat the you had to beat the Pirates, and you had those Dodgers and Expos and Reds and and right. and uh, you know it wasn't that easy to get to the postseason back then. When you did, you had less to to go through to get and win the World Series. But it was it was you had to win your division. And it wasn't today where you come in second place, you got a wild card. Not saying it's easier now because there's a, you know, there's a lot more once you get to the postseason. Now you got it. There's a lot more landmines set up for you to get to the World Series. Right. Back then you had to play 162 and the best team came out of that division. Uh, so it was just a different time, different game. But I, I remember 80 and, and what an unbelievable time. You know, the other thing on that is it, 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 the getting to the World Series, it wasn't best out of seven. It was best out of five. So, right. you know, when, when you're when you're two to two and you go into the dome and you're facing Nolan Ryan, I mean, it's not like, okay, if Nolan beats us, we still have two games left. It wasn't like that. And we weren't throwing our big guy. And uh, so, I mean, like you said, it's still very difficult to win a World Series, but the getting there – I'm not saying it is easier because I don't know about that wild card, that one game sudden death, that's got to be tough. But once you get there, you do have a seven game and then you have another seven game where you have a little leeway if you're not playing good the first couple of games. And we really didn't have that much of a leeway uh, playing against the Houston Astros. And then when I look back when we played the Dodgers and the Cincinnati Reds, I mean, those were two good teams that, uh, you know, they had a lot of talent. Man, and and what's still talked about today is still on Classic. You know, you'll turn on MLB yeah. Classic. Those those Astros games are still being replayed. Probably one of the greatest series yeah. in the history of the game. That that eighty. Yeah, your uh, dad, your your dad made it. <laughs> the the play. You know, it, to this day, that you you know, we always kid Bob about. Man, I'm glad Pete was there. And he goes, Bo. He always says this. And if you go anywhere, if he's speaking to guys. Why don't you guys all go look where Pete was playing and where I was playing and look how far I ran for that ball. Pete should have caught that ball without me even being near there. <laughs> and you, you know what? I, I, after he says that a few times, I, I see the replay. He did go a long way. Your dad did go a long way for that. And the fact that Pete obviously was right there anticipating, not that Boone going to miss it, but he was ready for the unexpected and again, that was a play when that happens in a World Series, you're out there and you're going, man, this is our year. That ball falls or hits the ground. Who knows? The next guy up hits a double. Uh, but, but things that happen, as you well know, when you're playing during the season, there's just something that comes up and you go, you know what? This might be our year this year. 
Yep. Yeah, and you had said it on the on the plane ride home from Houston to Bull. You said, "Yeah, this is I our did. year." And then and then you saw another. You know, when that Pete, that Dad and Pete play uh, played out, you you just probably reiterated your thoughts. Like, "Yep, I'm telling you, it's our year." It's it's pretty cool when things line up that way. Shortly yeah, after the '80 series, um, after the '81 season, you get traded to the Cubs. You you and Sandberg right. for De Jesus. You know, and they still talk yep. about it being how lopsided it was. It ended up being, you know, Ryan ended up going to the Hall right. of Fame. You right. ended up actually coaching under Ryan for a few years in Philly. But um, I did. <clears throat> tell me what that was like, because, I mean, my I, I, I was affected. I know my dad told me, you know, he got sent off to the Angels and, and they really were. Really talked about breaking that team down before you won the World Series. Yeah. You won the World Series. And after 81, they started to kind of break that team down. Yeah, he did, and and I caused my trade because uh, it was in the transition period where Ruley was selling the team, and Bill Giles, uh, you know, to this day, said that was the dumbest trade I ever made. Uh, and to this day, Brett, I keep telling, and every time I see Sandberg, I said, don't forget, man, you were the throw-in in that trade. So I don't want to hear about this, he was. Uh, this whole, <laughs> he was the throw-in. He, he anyway, was the throw-in. That's that's facts. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Uh, I had agreed with a contract before Ruley signed the papers to Bill that he was going to give me a three. I said, Ruley, I, I want, he says, you're going to be a free, you're going to be, I'm going to give you three years. I said, that's all I want is three years. Give me three years. He says, you got it. But because it was in, uh, going to change ownership, I had to wait until the ownership thing. And I said, is there going to be a problem here? Because Bill's group's taken over. He goes, no problem. Bill and I are tight. I'm telling them what transpired. I said, great. So lo and behold, the deal goes through. Bill's the, the, the new owner, and he calls me in his office, and he says, uh, I'm thinking, okay, he wants me to sign this. And he goes, you know, uh, I know Ruley told me that you guys agreed on a three-year deal. He says, but being a new owner, I, I can't okay this. And I said, what? I said, it was already agreed to. I said, Ruley and I shook hands. He says, I can give you a year contract. I said, no, 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 no. That's not how it went. And he says, well, then we're at a standstill. I said, then you know what? Trade me. Because I was 5 and 10. I said, just trade me. And, uh, you know, wherever you trade me to, I have to okay it. So wh whatever trade you come up with, you guys got to okay it with me. So Dallas calls me and says, I, I think I got a trade. Would you come to Chicago? And I said, yeah. I said, you're going to be there. Vuk's going there. I said, yeah, count me in. I said, I'm done with Bill. I'm done with the Phillies. I said, we had a, a gentleman's agreement with Ruley. And Ruley had called me and said, Bo, I'm sorry, blah, blah, blah. And I said, that's okay. I understand. And uh, so Dallas, uh, you know, he made, he says, I can get you for Jesus. I said, I I'm all in. And then Dallas says, I'm going to try to get somebody else in this trade. And he asked me, he says, what do you got on Sandberg? I said, I like Sandberg. I said, he's, he's going to be a good hitter. He hits the ball the other way. He's got great hands. He can run. Uh, he says, well, I'm going to try to get him to throw in Sandberg. I said, perfect. And so they threw Sandberg in, and then we, him and I both go to Chicago, and we end up playing there. And, of course, Rhino's the rest is history, history with him, Hall of Fame player, one of the great second basemen of all time. Uh, and then we win, we win the division in, uh, in 84, and we end up playing San Diego, and we win the first two games there, best out of five. And then we uh, we get on an airplane, and I had a bad vibe, Brett. 
you know, we had a lot of young guys on that Cub team, and Gary Matthews was there. And these guys are all celebrating. I said, hey, hey, Sarge, I said, what are these guys doing, man? We have to win another game. He goes, I know it. I don't like this. And we go out in San Diego, and we get swept in three games. And uh, San Diego ended up going on and playing uh, the Detroit Tigers, and the Tigers won the World Series. But I really believe that if we would have had our heads on straight going from Chicago to San Diego, we should have been in that World Series. But, you know, obviously it didn't happen. But, you know, when Dallas went to Chicago, he turned that whole city around. And from the time that 84 team, you take a look at the attendance there, it's off the charts every year. And Dallas had a lot to do with that. They used to call it the Phillies East because he used, Dallas got a lot of players from the Phillies that come over there. And, uh, but we had a good time there. I mean, I would have loved to finish my career in Philly without a doubt. And to this day, Bill and I are great friends. I, and I, I had said something in the paper. I had called him a liar. And, you know, if you can re, retract things you say, that would have been one of the first things I would have said. It didn't happen. Uh, and anyway, to make a long story short, I get interviewed to manage the Phillies in 2001. And part of the deal was Eddie Waite says, you're going to have to mend some fences with Bill Childs because Bill is still much. You have to go to his house. You have to apologize to him uh, because we're going to give you this job if things work out right with you and Bill. And so I went there and I said, hey, Bill, I, I apologize for everything I said. It was a, a weak moment on my part. I said, I love the Phillies. They've been my life. And it caught me off guard. And I thought I had a deal. But, you know, I can understand you were the new owner and you didn't want to give me three years. And so that's how I became the manager of the Phillies. I had to go to Bill's house and basically apologize for everything that I that I had said and done. And I ended up getting the job as the manager of the Phillies. Well, shoot, if I if I was playing and I had a handshake deal with and, and you know, to explain to the people listening, it, uh, really Carpenter is about a cool is about as cool oh. of an owner as you could possibly have. So he was a guy when he told you and, and you guys shook hands, it was a done deal. And if if even if he the, the ball club had changed hands, you probably assumed that that uh, Ruley had made it known that, hey, and by the way, Larry's got a three year deal going in. So I can I can completely see your position as a player without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, once once we shake hands, and especially in those days, a handshake meant a lot meant this is a done deal. So but how was it for you? Because, I mean, you grew up basically in that organization, you know, from 66 right. to 81. That's a lot of years. Uh, being with the right. organization. So it had to be a little bit bittersweet from, for you going uh, to Chicago. But what was it like for you in Chicago? Did you like playing at Wrigley Field? I, I did like playing at Wrigley Field. The only thing I didn't like, you know, at the time we got traded, there were no lights there. And, you know, the big deal there was, as you well know, when you play day games and all of a sudden you go to the West Coast or go to the East Coast and you got all night games and you come back and you're playing day games again, it did wear you out. But I loved playing it at Wrigley because it was like a job. You got up at 8 in the morning. You came home at 5 at night. You got to barbecue. You got to do whatever you wanted to do, and you knew you were playing the next day. But getting off road trips and that was very difficult. And that's why until they put the lights in, you know, Dallas kept telling them, you're never going to win here unless you get lights here because the transition going from all day to night back to day, it, it, it wears on you. But it was fun. Uh, again, I would have rather finish my career here. But if I had to go another place, I'm glad I got to uh, enjoy Chicago. Chicago is a great city. Uh, we had a good team. 
in 84. Uh, we shocked the world, basically, and uh, it was a lot of fun. But uh, looking back on that, uh, if you could redo things, I probably would have handled the Philly thing a little different. But, uh, you know, I'm not blaming Bill. I'm not blaming uh, – definitely not blaming Ruley. But it's just something that happened. And uh, obviously, sometimes you say things you regret. And looking back on that, t- today, as we speak today, Bill and I are real good friends. And he'll we'll go out to dinner and he'll say, man, I, I really screwed up on that trade. I said, ah, don't worry about it. So <laughs> I said, I wanted to say, you didn't screw up if it was just me for DeJesus, but you, you screwed up when you threw in Sandberg. <laughs> 85, midway, you, you uh, get traded to the Mets. You finish your career right. there. After the 85 season, uh, 2,200 hits, close to 2,200 hits, 318 stolen bases. And you didn't – this is another amazing part. After 85, you're done as a player. You're getting on the other side of the ledger, so you're going into management position. And your first gig's AAA in Las Vegas. That's the PCL. I played in that league. Unbelievable. Jack McKeon called me. First of all, the Mets wanted me to come back as a utility player. I said, no, I'm done. You know, when you play, Brett, there's some balls that are hit, and you don't get to them. And, you know, I remember going home and saying, man, I got to catch that ball, or I got a bad jump. And I just told, I think Frank Cashin was, I said, you know what, I appreciate it, uh, but I, I'm done. I said, I, I, I could stay a year and be a utility player, but I'm going to move on. And I remember sitting at home, and I got a phone call from Jack McKeon. And he says, hey, what are you going to do? Uh, I said, I'd like to manage. You know, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to offer me a Class A ball or double A. He says, well, we have an opening in uh, in Vegas. And I'm going, Vegas? I said, are you kidding me? He says, you want to do it? I said, yeah. So, uh, you know, obviously I was all in. And we ended up winning the championship my first year. And, again, hindsight being 2020. They made a change in San Diego, and Jack says, I want you to be the manager. If I could have a redo again, I should have said, no, I need more time here. But somebody offers you a big league manager's job. You're not going to say no. Now, you might, with the the knowledge you got now, you might do that. You might might poke that kid that just retired from the big leagues and and is the Las Vegas Stars manager and say, hey, let me tell you, I got a crystal ball. Don't take the Padre job. He's going to look at you like, get out of my face. I'm taking the Padre job. That's the big leagues. What what was the tough part for you, that 87-88? Well, it was tough because Jack says, he says, we got a young team, just play them. We know we're not doing anything. I had Kruk, I had Alomar, I had both Alomars. I had uh, Mark Parent, I had all young guys. And he said, don't worry about winning, let these guys develop. And I bet Benito Santiago was my catcher. And so I said, perfect. You know, so I go to, I go to, uh, uh, Arizona, Yuma, Arizona spring training. And that's my first year there. And we got out of the gate slow. And, uh, Roy, I think, uh, Croc, the owner of McDonald's was the owner and he was getting uh, impatient. He goes, we got to start winning. We got to start winning. And so Jack comes down and says, Hey man, the owner's getting mad. We got to start winning baseball games. And I went, Oh my God, what, what do you want me to do? I said, I played these guys the first year. Now all of a sudden we're supposed to jump ship. He says, Hey, I'm just telling you, you got to start winning. Well, we didn't start winning, and so I got fired. I remember the game. We won a game in New York, one to nothing, and uh, Barry Bloom, who was a beat writer, called me on my phone. He says, you know Jack McKeon's in New York? I said, no. 
He says, he's there. And he says, you know why he's there? And I went, no. He said, he's going to fire you. I went, what? And lo and behold, next day, Jack comes up to my room. and He says, we're going to make a change. I went, why? And he goes, well, you know, the owner wants to start winning games. And I said, okay, you know, that's the way it's going to be. I said, that's the way I, you know, I said, I went with the program, but obviously it wasn't good enough. And so that's how that yeah. sort of uh, evolved. And, it, you know, it turned out good. I ended up uh, uh, coaching for a long time at third uh, in Philly. Then I, I ended up coaching for Lou Pinella and Joe Torrey, two great managers with two different personalities. Uh, I had a ball under both of them. Uh, Lou's personality was similar to mine. Joe Torre, very calm and serene, had a beat on everything. And uh, I, I had a ball uh, coaching for both those guys. Yeah, from 89 and 96, you go back to Philly and, and you coach third there. Uh, and then right. 97 and 99, you go to the Angels. Angels. And, and I know how important – uh, that third base coach, it's not a glamorous position. Uh, you don't get a lot of credit, but you sure as hell get, get, uh, get a lot of criticism in, in a big play, <laughs> but it's, it's a key position. And let you, you amongst us players, you were always known as I'd love to have Larry Bow as my third base coach. Cause for me, what, what pays the bills driving in runs. And I always yes. used to tell our third base coach and you know what it's like playing for Lou. If, oh, if yeah. you're a rookie or a young, uh, young coach in the big leagues and you're under Lou. Oh man. It's like, you're scared <laughs> to death. And I used to tell our guy, Hey, send him, send him. Let's be aggressive <laughs> here. And Oh, we don't want to get in trouble with Lou, but you were one of the best. Um, well, I, I how important, you, how important is, give me your thoughts on, on coaching third base. Well, you know what, Brett, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a instincts. Obviously it's the score. Who's pitching against you. Who's pitching for you. Who's coming up. Who's on deck. You obviously you, you take the arms into consideration. All that goes in your mind before it happens, not while it happens. And so you do your homework and, you know, back then guys took infield. So you get to go out there as a coach and watch guys throw from right field, left field, center field. So you had a pretty good feel as to who could throw and who couldn't. But it's ironic you mentioned Lou because Lou's tough. Let me tell you something. So we're playing in Toronto. Edgar Martinez is at second. Raul Mondesi's in right. Two outs, a rope to right, and I hold up Edgar. And now when I hold him up, I look in that we're playing in Toronto and Lou's at the top step with his hands out like, what are you doing? And so I turn my head, and, and, and Edgar doesn't score. And so I go in, and Lou goes, what are you doing? I said, Lou, he's out. He said, I don't care. Two outs, you send him. I said, Lou, you got it. You're the manager. Brett, I'm telling you, as I swear on my dad's grave, the next night, Edgar's at second, a base hit to Mondesi. And I went, two outs, go. The catcher had to wait for Edgar to slide in home. And so he's out by 20 feet, and I'm rolling the dugout, and Lou goes, hey, Bo, maybe we better talk about that. I said, no kidding, Lou. I said, that's the exact same play that you aired me out on last night. I said, but you told me to send them, so that's exactly what I did. But that stands out because Lou's funny. And, you know, Joe Torrey told me this before. He says, Bo, Lou and myself never coached third. So if you've never coached third, and now you're going you're gonna, to, you know, dissect what a guy does out there – be careful because that, like you said, that's a, a no-win situation. The only time writers want to talk to you is if the game ends and a guy gets thrown out at home. They don't talk about all the guys you send that are safe 
It's that one guy. When that writer comes in and says, hey, Bo, you got a second? I know exactly what the question's going to be, so I'm ready to answer it. But it was funny that you mentioned Lou because Lou with his hands out, I'm, seen, I'm sure you've seen that pose before. His hands oh, are out. Uh, like, j- just a few times. <laughs> I'll tell you, I had Lou, a ball with those guys. Believe me, Lou. Lou, uh, I got to. I was fortunate enough to play for a lot of great skippers. Um, but at the end of the day, if I've got to choose, Lou was is my favorite all time. And we had Larry. We we had some when I was a kid coming up with Seattle and in the early nineties. We had some knock. <laughs> Knock down, drag out fights in his in his uh, in his locker room, and we oh, we couldn't yeah. stand each other. We couldn't stand each other in the <laughs> early nineties. Fast forward, I come back in in two thousand one, the year after you left, and uh, right. you know I played for him for a few more years. Ended up we we ended up being best buds. He was my favorite favorite of all time because now as a veteran player and it was a different ball game. He'd give me those hands up and I'd give him the hands back. What do you want me to do, Lou? Why don't you go hit? All right, Booney, I understand. <laughs> but I'll tell you, when I was a kid, I understand exactly what you're saying. He, the night before, he told you, send him with two outs. Next night, you send yeah. him. What do you do and send him? Yeah. He took me as a kid. Now, I'll try not to take too much time here. I'm a kid. It's, it's my rookie year. I'm supposed to be the next this and that and lose kind of looking at me like you haven't done anything yet, kid. You haven't done shit. <laughs> and I'm going, yeah, you're right. You're right. But you know, I think I, I think I have, he takes me down to the lower field. He goes, we gotta, we gotta use your power bar. We gotta use your power. He, he took me down to like field three in Peoria, had a BP guy. He made me hit for an hour. He goes, I want you to hit every ball out of left center and left field. I want you to hit home runs. I mean, by the end of this session, I'm just, I can't breathe. And I'm just going, wow, I got the skipper down here making me hit homers. <clears throat> so I, I, I think it's a great session. By the end of spring training, uh, I get called in the last day of spring training. And Sammy Perlazzo, I'll never forget it. He goes, Skip wants to see. You. I said, what? This is not good. I go in there. He says, hey, Booney, we're going to set. We're going to send you out. I said, what do you mean you're going to send me out? He goes, yeah, we're going to just send you out <laughs> for a week. And I read the paper the next day. And you know what's written in the paper? Lou says that Boone won't hit the ball the other way. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> Lou, you got me down there hitting homers. But that was Lou. That's what makes him oh. Lou. There's only one Lou. No question. I love the guy. Believe me. The one guy that used to take a beating, and I mean a beating, was Dan Wilson. I, I, I mean, he would come to the dugout after a guy hits a home run, and he would say, what are you doing <laughs> throwing that pit? What are you doing, Willie? And he says, I didn't tell him to hang the breaking ball, Lou. I don't want to hear it. That's bad pitch selection. But poor Dan, he had he, he was in a, a lose lose no matter what. But he was he did a great job the way and I asked him one day, I said, Hey Dan, don't you ever say anything? He says not. He says it's like button your head against that wall. Just agree with him and move on. Yeah, but uh Lou was great. And uh, everybody I tell you what, guys played for him. You know, regardless of what he said in the paper, regardless of what he did. You wanted to go through a brick wall for him, and that's how it was, you know, when you get guys like that. And the same was for Joe Torrey. i never seen a group of guys that would uh, sell out when they took the field for those two guys. You mentioned 2000. You had just a brief stop in Seattle. Uh, 2001, 
get another opportunity right. to manage. You're going to manage the Phillies. You ended up managing from 01 to 04. Uh, right. You said you said if you if you could have made a different choice, which I don't believe you, I don't think you would have. You wouldn't have taken the Padre job. What right. had you learned from then to 2001? How are you going to go into this next managerial opportunity? You end up being manager of the year in 2001. Well, I think one thing, Brett, and I, I, when I took that job in San Diego, I expected everyone to have the same work ethic as I did. I mean, you saw when I, by pregame, I'd probably take 50 ground balls every day. I'd hit till my hands bled. And I expected everybody to do that because I'm saying you guys got all have more ability than I ever thought I have it. So if you worked as hard as I did, you guys could be great players. So I had to shed that and say, you know what? Everybody's different. Mike Schmidt didn't have to take 50 ground balls. Greg Lazinski didn't have to hit uh, uh, 45 minutes. He's, he's going to be a good hitter. So I basically, I said, you know what? Each guy's different. You got to learn how to handle the personality. Some guys are low key. You pat them on the back. Some guys you got to kick in the butt. So I think I learned through the, the different managers, you know, and coaching third that you got to do it different. You can't expect everyone to be a maniac like you when you put the uniform on. So in that aspect, I did learn that. And again, you know, we talked about being at the right place at the right time. The Phillies were horrendous in 99, 98, 2000. And basically, and Terry Francona, who I think is one of the great managers of all time, it didn't matter who was managing those teams. That was a bad team. So I went in there and I had to basically, they got used to losing. They, you know, they, you know, there's one thing about dealing with losses. That's one thing, but don't accept losing. So I had to change that whole mentality in that clubhouse. And I tried to do that. And, you know, with the exception of one year, we were every game, every season, we were over 500. We almost got in the playoffs the one year. But uh, it, I think that's the biggest difference I learned is that you can't expect everyone to do what you did to be successful because they had more Billy than I did. Uh, and I, I, to this day, when I talk to young kids, I, I tell them, I guarantee every guy in this room has got more ability than I ever thought I have it. I said, but if you put in the time and you work hard and you respect the game and don't take plays off and play nine innings, 27 outs, you'd be shocked at how good you could be. And I try to pass that message on. You know, baseball is a game where what you learn, you try to pass on to the young kids. And if some listen, that's fine. If they don't, that's also fine. But I think I learned the hard way that don't think that everyone's got to do what you did pregame and during the off season, because they have a lot more ability than you and they don't have to do that. So I think that was the biggest lesson. Do you remember that Oh three season when, when uh, that was in the Mariners at the time, we were hot as a firecracker coming to oh. Philly. Do you, you yeah. remember that series? I, I remember you hit some rockets to right center, but I remember, <laughs> I remember me and you, uh, I come back to Philly and once again, I get nostalgic. I mean, you know, I have to be poised and pretend like I'm professional, but when I'm coming back right. to the vet, that's kind of something that's neat for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I used to come back oh, and go, yeah. man, this is where I used to run around as a kid. And now I'm a big leaguer and you know, it's still cool as much as I'm keeping that cool persona up. I'm, I was always very uh, aware of where I was and, and how special it was. Right. But I remember I said, all right, I'm going to go talk because we were so hot, Larry. I mean, those Mariner teams, those early 2000s, we just had a oh, core yeah. of guys yeah. and and we were rolling on that trip. And I remember you were, you came out, we were hitting and me and you were having a little talk. I don't know whether you remember this. I said, Larry, here's what's going to happen. 
We're going to beat. We're going to sweep you. It was a four game series. I said, we're going to sweep you real quick because we're a lot better than you. You got no chance of beating this one game. And you had you guys have been on a losing streak or something. And and. Uh, and and that friendship thing was going. You go. You know what? And I remember you turned to me and you said, "Booney, fuck you." <laughs> and you walked away. And you walked into the dugout. And for the rest of the series, I remember because you know, in the vet, when you're a right-handed hitter, man, oh, you look right I'm, lo- I'm looking straight at you. And oh, I, I, I think I did. I, I think I did have a good series that series. But I remember you, looking you straight great- at you every time. And I'd come back. You- we did. We beat you four straight. And I remember sitting in our I dugout. I said, "Larry is so pissed right now." <laughs> I said, "We what? keep whooping his butt." I ran into, uh, you know, and and rest his soul, uh, Vuk. I ran into Vuk right. under underneath the tunnel after game two or game three, and I and I kind of told him the story. He goes, "Yeah, he'll get over it." But uh, I had okay. a nice talk. That's that's the last time I got to have a chat with him. You know that 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 you bring up Vuk's name because I remember you did wear us out, and I was he's sitting right next to me, and I said, "What are we trying to do with him?" And he looked at me, and he goes, "Well, with the pitchers, if you take a look at the pitches, Bo, he says they're mistakes, and he's crushing them." I said, I don't care what they are. I said, we got to do something different. And he looked at me like I was had 10 heads. You know, him, Mook and I, we go way back, way back. And uh, anyway, again, you did. You guys killed us, and, and you had an unbelievable series. But uh, that was a great team, you guys had. In fact, the year I left, in 2000, it was a good team. We beat the White Sox, and then we end up losing to, uh, to the Yankees in a playoff game. Lou brought in uh, Arthur Rhodes to face – justice and before he sat down it was at yankee stadium he went i don't know about this move and i'm sitting there thinking oh my god and i and i remember we were sitting there and he said arthur has trouble at yankee stadium but he pitches good at, at, at seattle he didn't get that out of his mouth and justice rattles one to right field about 400 feet and i went oh my god so but that's we had a good year though there 2000 we just got beat against the yankees uh, after 2004, you leave Philly, and before you go to work for Joe Torre, uh, you made a little pit stop. You went to ESPN. How how did you like doing it? Doing uh, you know doing something on this side of the mic? I liked it. I had a good time there. I I had a real good time. It was a little bit strange at first because you know they would they would you'd be getting ready to go on a show and say and they would say I'll give you for instance well you're going to talk about Brett Boone today. And I'd say, okay. And then 10 minutes before we're going, oh, no, we're changing that. You're going to talk about uh, Randy Johnson or somebody else. You know, they catch you off guard and everything. That's the only thing that bothered me. But I had a good time there because they let you basically tell your side of what you see and and, and, uh, and what you would do in these situations. And I had, like I said, I had a good time doing that. Uh, I'm glad I did it. And it, it's it's different when you get on the other side, believe me. Uh, 06 and 07, you go to the Yankees with Torrey, and he he brings you along with him to the Dodgers uh, through right. 2010. Um, right. You know, Joe, and I know Joe in passing. You know, I played so many games against Joe, a lot of big games at Yankee Stadium. Always had the utmost respect uh, for him. Uh, people don't realize how great of a of a hitter that guy was. Everybody knows Joe Torrey oh. now in the modern day as this this iconic uh, New York manager, but that's that sucker could rake back in the day. Oh, are you kidding me? I, I just went to his 80th birthday uh, 
it was last year, but they, they couldn't have it because of COVID. And so this year we did it and it was in Vegas. And I was talking to him and we were talking about, I said, Joe, I said, I know you've been a great manager. I said, but that year in St. Louis, you hit rockets and I know you can't run a lick and you led the league in hitting. He says, well, that's the greatest year I've ever had. But every time he came up, he was just like you said, he was a great hitter. And, uh, but I look back at that, but, but Joe's a tremendous individual, man. Uh, you talk about two different personalities in Joe. And yeah. Him. Yeah. I want but you to I, contrast them a little bit. Cause I never got the opportunity <laughs> to play for Joe. Uh, but I just kind of, I was always, like I said, it was, it was a respect thing from the other side, just always respected the way he went about his business, the way his players handled themselves. And obviously, uh, it wasn't that tough when you were winning those, you know, in those late nineties, early two thousands, those great Yankee teams with that great core. Um, but, but I always respected it. It was the way they presented himself and it was always, you know, I don't know. I just always had a fondness for Joe Torrey. So give me, give me the the differences and and what he was like coming from Lou. Well, you know, Joe, if if Lou had a clubhouse meeting, there's a good thing, good chance things were going to be flying around. When, When Joe had a clubhouse meeting, it was almost like it was, uh, you had your business suit on and you sat down. There was one game that stands out in my mind, and the reason I remember this is because it happened with A-Rod and Jeter. We were playing a day game, and we were getting ready to go after that day game to Boston. We played terrible. I mean, the Yankees, we got, we got beat 11-1 to or 11-2, to whatever it was. It was a mismatch, but we played terrible. There was a pop-up, two of them, that between Jeter and A-Rod, and I know that the wind was blowing. Both balls dropped, and so I had never seen Joe – mad and as we're coming off and he says uh make sure everybody's inside i'm gonna have a meeting i said okay and i'm saying oh man he's gonna go off here and so we get in the clubhouse and he goes guys uh didn't raise his voice one bit he says guys that's unacceptable that's not the yankee way and you know you embarrassed me you embarrassed the city you embarrassed yourselves and so i figured okay that's the meeting and he says and i'm gonna bring up air uh a rod and jeet you guys are two great players. That's unacceptable to see those balls drop between you two guys. Again, did not raise his voice, got his point across, and everybody in that room saying, he just got on Jeet and A-Rod without raising his voice. He got his point across. We go to Boston. We play a five-game series, and we crushed them five straight. And I'm looking back, and I'm saying, that meeting, if that was me or Lou, stuff would have flew all over that clubhouse. But he did not – he didn't even – he had to probably listen real close to what he was saying. He was that calm, but he made his point. And that, that's when, – when he did that and he brought up the two superstars on that team, I'm saying to myself, man, all these other guys in that clubhouse, if they see Joe say something about those two guys, they better be at attention and, and pay attention to detail – when you take the field, but it was an incredible meeting without raising his voice. And he got his point across, but that stands out as I look back on, on things that went through my mind when watching Lou and, and Joe manage. 2013, you, you do the WBC with, with Joe once again. And, uh, 2014, you come back to Philly and, and you're there currently in, in a, in a uh, upper management position, but how was that? The trade, you know, that Giles, uh, who was it? Was it Giles that made the trade? 
Yeah. Said yeah. it was the yeah. worst trade he ever made for, for Rhino and yourself. <laughs> but how is right. that coming back that many years later and you're coaching under a manager that was the throw in in the trade? It was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And, you know, the thing about that is that Rhino was manager at AAA and uh, he had called me and said, hey, you know, I, I got a shot of uh, maybe managing the Phillies. He said, would you be interested in the bench coach? I said, I said, let me think about it, okay? And Because I really didn't know if I wanted to do that again. And so I thought about it, and he called me again. He said, I'm getting a job. And Ruben, I think Ruben Amaro was the, uh, the general manager. And so uh, they both got on the phone and said, hey, Rhino wants you as your third-base coach, would, I mean bench coach, would you? Would you be interested? And, and, you know, I thought about it and I said, yeah, yeah, I'd definitely be interested. And I knew it wasn't a real good team. It was a team on the downside. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I really like Rhino. Uh, and we had a great friendship going and everything. And uh, so I took that job. And it sort of shocked me when, uh, when he basically he quit, you know. And I know he was getting frustrated. Uh, but the part that he quit that bothered me a little bit, you know, to this day, Rhino was a guy that expected guys to play the way you're supposed to play. And it just wasn't happening with that team. It just, and it ended up being, he went back to Chicago and he's one of the, you know, ambassadors there. And then, you know, I see him every year somewhere along the way. And to this day, we're still good friends. Philly has been a pretty huge part of your life, Larry. I mean, you, I mean, you've you've been traded. You've you've yelled you've yelled at him. You came back. He came back again. You're still a, you're, you're still a part of that organization. What a special sports town that place is. You're in the you get uh, selected to the Wall of Fame in 1991. That had to be a big honor for you. And what I what I really like about Philly and and still to this day cuz with mom and dad being a part of it is the way you guys uh, the way they treat the alumni, the way they have you guys back. That 80s team seems like it's always coming back for a reunion. Man, I, I think it's so cool and so important for an organization to do that. Uh, and and kind of I, I, I'm a little bit jealous of that. Like, wow, how cool is that? That those guys know every year and you get to not only are you hanging out with with Trio and Bull and Dad and, and uh, Lefty, but you're seeing guys from the past, too, past and and the uh, the present guys or, or the guys that just recently um retired i mean you, you'll have anybody there right. from jim tomey to to jimmy rollins to chase utley to uh right. bull i mean it, it's yeah. it talk about that philly family a little bit it's really a cool thing it it, it, it is it's, it really is is brett and and you know you brought up the 80 team we were supposed to have that reunion last year and i was the COVID, but we are going to have it next year and every year you know your dad comes and bull and schmitty and lefty and you know uh and Manny Trio, Bake McBride, Maddox, they, they all come back. But, you know, when you win a World Series, you, you can get in the playoffs. You can make an all-star team. You can do all that stuff. And you have friends that you that are friends for life. But when you win a World Series, there is a special bond that stays with you forever. And whether it be a card show where you're signing the alumni Going to spring training, we see that core group, your dad, Bull, Schmitty, Lefty. I know every year I'm going to see them at least once, maybe two or three times during the year. And that's special because that's a bond that sticks with you forever. 
And to have that ring is something that you look back on and you say, you know what? That was the greatest baseball team in 1980 out of all the teams in baseball. But the Phillies honoring the alumni and respecting the guys that played and obviously the guys that are coming up, like Harp, who to me is, is uh, unbelievable. We got Wheeler now and JT. To be part of that is something that I really cherish. It, you mentioned Jimmy and Chase and Howard. I was all part of that. And I'm not saying I made them. It was great being around them. I, I got to see greatness with those guys. And to see that every year, whether it's at spring training, whether it's at the alumni, whether it's at, at uh, Citizens Bank Park now, is something that I cherish every year and I look forward to. So hopefully this can keep going. And, you know, they never forget the team that won the first ever World Series. And that's something that uh, you look back on and say that's something special. Been through a lot. You've, you've done a lot in this game, Larry. Uh, what are you most proud of? I think that the, the most, the thing I'm most proud of is the longevity that I've had. I think I'm the, the longest tenured Philly in, that ever been in a uniform or employed. I look back on that and I, I, I keep reverting back to, I signed for $2,000 and to stay that long, to have that kind of staying power. And you know, you walk around Philly, your dad will be the first to tell you this. And he doesn't, he's not around here. He walks into a restaurant. Everybody knows the guys that won. Hey, can I get you a drink? Hey, let me buy this. Let, it's, it's amazing. But the fact that I stayed for so long and still involved with the Phillies, I'm really proud of that. And, and again, the Phillies, I, I owe a lot to the Phillies. They have really, really embraced me. I know there's been, like you said, ups and downs along the way, but there's a lot more ups than downs. And hopefully I can continue this as long as my health's good and as long as I continue to love baseball, which I do. And I get to see your dad and Bull and Schmitty every year. So I, I look forward to that stuff. Larry Bola, pleasure. It, it was great getting to catch up with you and talk about uh, talk about a lot of different things. And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we bring in the voice, Dan Levy, to ask a question from the fans. Dan? Gentlemen, how are you? Okay. All right, Larry, this one comes from Jim in St. Pete, and he wants to know this. Larry, do third base coaches talk with the third base umpires and have conversations? That's a great question because I watch games now, and the first thing I see is third base coaches and first base coaches go shake the umpire's hand. I don't. I never did that. So, But now <laughs> it's, it's, it's part of the ritual before the game starts. They go up, shake the guy's hand, pat him on the back and all that. I guess because you can't argue anymore. If there's a call, it goes to the replay. Uh, you can't yell at an umpire for missing a call because he can say, hey, New York said he was out, so he's out. So th that part of it's changed. Uh, I'm not all into the, the players running out to center field and hugging each other before the game. But, again, it's a different game now. Uh, you know, I'm used to watching it now. But, no, I did not talk to the umpires. And last question for you would be from Rich in Tucson, and he wants to know, give us one good Brett Boone story. Brett Boone, man, I'll tell you what. Well, when even at a young age, I knew this guy was going to be something special because he had that cockiness about him that it didn't matter who was pitching. When he got in the box, if you were the opposing manager or coach, you know he was going to do some damage. And he believed, I could, I saw this guy strike out three times in a row once. And the fourth time up hit a bomb to right center. 
But the fact is, he never, ever didn't believe in his ability. This guy, if he did, he didn't show it. He probably was a guy that I would have loved to have played with, but I wouldn't want to play against him because I would have said, God, I don't like him. <laughs> but I would have loved to have him on our team. It reminded me a lot of Pete Rose, to be honest with you. I used to hate Pete. Then when he put on those Philly pinstripes, I went, oh, my God, look what I got here. I think that's what it would have been with Brett because, Brett, I admire what he did. For a little guy, I'm going to tell you something. This guy could hit a ball a long way, and uh, he played the game with a lot of energy, believe me, a lot of energy. Larry Boa, thank you so much for coming on the Moon Podcast. We appreciate it, sir. I had a great time, and uh, good luck to everybody. Happy holidays and a healthy and happy new year. Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know that sound, don't you? (laughs) <laughs> it's mailbag time, Dan. Oh, it's my first time. Welcome to it, Booner. All right, Brett. This one comes from Jamie in Lockport, and she wants to know, Brett, what is on your bucket list? Do you have one? Uh, don't really have a bucket list, but let's see. On the spot, what's on my bucket? I, I want to travel. I, I've traveled a lot. You know, I've, I've been to... Oh, the Caribbean, all over Mexico. I got a chance to go to Cuba with the national team. I've been to Haiti. I've been to uh, – I've been a lot of places, obviously everywhere in the United States, but I've never really gone overseas. I was in Taiwan as a young kid uh, playing on a on a USA team when I was 15 or 16, but I haven't been over to Europe, haven't – haven't done that. I'd love to go over to like Scotland and play golf. So I think, you know, as I'm getting a little bit over, I, I might consider do some traveling and go see what it's like uh, on the other side of the lake. My name is Dan Levy. And I'm the technical director and producer of the Boom Podcast. EP executive producer is Rich Herrera. Digital content for the Boom Podcast, Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. While you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. 